Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. In this episode of the Cato Podcast, I sit down with Cato board member John Cabrera, who serves as a secretary for the BOD and facilitates our SWAT auditing program. I asked John to discuss what an independent audit looks like and some of the common themes we see teams struggle with throughout the state. John was recently asked to assist Brent, the president of Cato, in investigating what we could do better to help the Cato community work on their wellness and mental health. John and I have discussed his own path throughout his career, and I asked him to share his experiences and some of the things he's learned recently and what we can do better to enjoy our life after this career. As always, I hope you enjoy the show and share it with someone who needs it. Thank you. And I would like to take a moment to thank Cato Gold Sponsors for supporting the work that Cato does throughout California. I would like to thank Aardvark Tactical for their relentless support for Cato for many years. While they may be famous for their excellent customer service, Project 7 Armor Platform, and Sejin and low-key tactical robots, Aardvark works with teams to deliver custom integrated purpose-built solutions that are designed to protect tactical operators. They find develop, and manufacture purpose-built products that enhance tactical operator safety. Check them out at aardvarktactical.com. Thank you to Battleboard, a company whose origins were founded by a Marine who was looking for a flexible, durable, and portable map tracking system to coordinate operations on the ground in Afghanistan. Several evolutions later, Battleboard has emerged as an industry leader for those coordinating small and large-scale operations in the field. Veteran-owned and made in America, start your next mission fully prepared with Battleboard. Check them out at battleboard.us. I'd like to thank a long-standing supporter of Cato and our chemical agent program. Founded in 1981, Combined Systems Incorporated is a recognized leader in the design, manufacture, and marketing of security products for the global defense and law enforcement markets. As the premier supplier of less lethal munitions and launching systems, CSI manufactures products for riot control, police tactical teams, corrections officers, and military units. CSI's blue chip customer base includes the U.S. Army, U.S. Marines, U.S. Navy, and the majority of U.S. law enforcement, as well as foreign military and security forces around the world. Check them out at combinedsystems.com. John. Yes. Thanks for being on the podcast again. No, thank you for having me, Marcus. It's been a little while. So John is a uh, Cato board member, serves as the current secretary of Cato. We're in Fresno today um, teaching critical incident leadership, uh, John and I together. And it's been a while since we had John on the podcast. And so I kind of wanted to ask him to come on, tell us a little bit about why he joined Cato initially, why he uh, asked to be a board member and serve uh, on the board. And then a little bit about what he does for Cato, which includes uh, our SWAT audits, as well as some instruction. And then recently, him and the president of Cato have been uh, talking to folks about wellness because uh, top two things Post has been working on the last year, and one of them is wellness because unfortunately, uh, suicide rate uh, in our profession is skyrocketing. And uh, I don't say that lightly, as uh, yesterday, uh, we lost several L.A. County Sheriff's deputies to suicide all in the same day, Uh, appears to be unrelated, but uh, our hearts and prayers go out to that organization and those families. 
and it's something that we can't ignore. It's uncomfortable to talk about. But uh, before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about uh, John and just, uh, hey, buddy, tell us, uh, tell everyone a little bit about where you came from, what's going on with you, why you chose to get involved with Cato, and then uh, how we roped you into serving on the board. Yeah. Um, so I'm a, I'm a 30 year law enforcement veteran, um, been with the last agency for 25 years. Uh, spent a lot of my career in SWAT, uh, canine gangs, um, been a sergeant for 14 years, uh, did a bunch of stuff as a sergeant, property crimes, the, our critical incident investigation team doing major IAs, OISs, stuff like that. And uh, when I first got into police work years ago, um, I wanted to be a SWAT cop. And that was that was what was driving me, um, getting into SWAT. And I remember being at a at a conference, at a the Cato conference actually years ago, and talking to one of the the OG uh, Cato guys. And I, I asked him, I said, "Hey, uh, I want to get involved with Cato." And he told me, uh, he goes, "Well, what do you want to do?" And I said, "Well, I, I don't know. What can I do?" And that's kind of where the conversation ended. And then uh, several years ago, um, I was actually uh, up in the middle of the night feeding my newborn son and I'm flipping through a Cato mag. And at the end, at the back of it, I see this um, little like advertisement for the strategic leadership program. And uh, I was like, okay, this looks interesting. Um, I reached out to uh, the director at the time, the program director and uh, um Kind of went through a vetting process and next thing you know i'm part of a slp1 where I, I met you and um you know toby and kenny and mitch and um uh, travis norton a bunch of guys and uh really got the bug um i've always had kind of a an instructor level um position within the department whether it was arrest and control or firearms or something and uh my big thing is I just wanted to give back to the SWAT community that, that had fed me for so many years. So uh, once we got through SLP, um, got out of that, and then uh, I think it was you and Brent that approached me like, hey, you know, um, what do you think about serving on the board? And I was all in. I was like, yeah, I, I want to get more involved. So there were some elections that, that took place and I got the secretary position. And uh, it was nice being able to kind of peel back the curtain and see what really goes on with Cato and how much we we do give back to the SWAT profession and the law enforcement profession. And uh, I was hooked. Um, I've always been one of those people that I'm not real good at, at just kind of sitting idle. Uh, I've, I've got to be doing something uh, constantly. And this was a great way to, to get involved and kind of, um, you know, push that next generation forward. What do you think – is so special about our community like not granted cato started off as a swat organization but we got lots of members that aren't swat folks that just want to enhance their tactical uh, knowledge and training and and leadership and network and all that but what's special about the the cato community that drew, drew you to it initially well i think as a as a swat cop um, you know, everyone wants to, to do the sexy stuff. Everyone wants to, you know, blow up doors and shoot machine guns and, and chase the, the baddest of the bad guys that are out there. And I really, I really was missing a lot as far as what Cato does do, um, for the law enforcement profession as a whole. And it wasn't until SLP 
where I got to spend a lot of time with, with guys like Sid, um, you know, Ron, Ron McCarthy and, you know, RK Millers and, and the guys that really paved the way for us. And by no means do I hold myself to that level of, of what they've done. But I thought, well, at some point when these guys, you know, do retire and, and want to enjoy life without all these responsibilities that someone's got to pick up that torch and I'm willing to do it. And even if it's on my own time or, uh, I got to spend my own money to be part of that, I'm willing to do that. And I wasn't looking for compensation. I wasn't looking for attaboys. I just wanted to be involved. Well, that's good. That's good. Yeah, uh, the secretary job doesn't play that well. No, it doesn't. Um, pretty much zero. But, but seeing that we not only have a responsibility to SWAT teams, but I can tell you, and I kind of say this little tongue in cheek, but you know, every, every spontaneous event that I responded to in SWAT, it all started at the patrol level. Like that barricade happened at the patrol level and we were getting um, the call in the middle of the night or something cracked off and now we're rolling and getting exposed to Sid and tax science and, you know, Odie and Tim Anderson and, these guys that that really did kind of write the playbook for us. The guys that didn't have a playbook when they started took the time to construct a playbook and framework. And I quickly realized that, hey, this isn't just a SWAT thing. This isn't every cop thing. This isn't everybody thing. You know, the tactics belong to everybody. The The application, the art of it belongs to everybody. So, you know, I've always just wanted to to prepare my people to be better off than I was. And I think that's what Cato does is, is we reach down to the, the brand new beat cop out there or the detective or the narc or the dog handler and say, Hey, these are not SWAT tactics. These are everyone's tactics and let us teach you that. So that's what I think is really special about Cato and what we do. Agreed. Agreed. My friend, that's why, that's why I'm here too. There's, there's a lot of people out there that, we're better, uh, better than me in a lot of different ways. <laughs> um, so, um, hopefully, uh, take the stuff that we know and, and, you know, pass it on and push that rock up the hill with somebody else. So let's talk a little bit about SWAT audits. So okay. you are our chair, kind of the point of contact when, uh, executives or leaders, um, decide, Hey, we want to take a look at our tactical team. Generally, it's a SWAT team. Mm-hmm. Um, although we could do a, a mobile force, mobile field force team, or some other tile tact teams if we needed to, and they go, "Hey, we're we have a we we all agree that you can do everything right and have a bad outcome." Absolutely. And even if we have a good outcome, we are subject to having people come and look at what we do and make sure we're consistent with best practices that where selection processes are appropriate, our retention processes are in place. We're actively supervising and, uh, and we're training and equipping properly so that we can defend our programs and we can allocate the right resources. And so you can do that after you have one of those events, but um, how much better would it be to do a pre-mortem and to go, hey, let's have a third party come in and and examine what we could do better so that I can prepare this report and uh, give it to my superiors or my city council or my county council or my city manager 
or, or whoever in the chain of command needs to see it, that, hey, these aren't just my ideas. Here's what we think best practices are. And here's some things we're doing great. And here's some things that uh, we need to improve. And uh, let's do that before the next event takes place. And so um, what are, how has that worked for you? And uh, I've done a couple of those with you and you've done several uh, with our team. And uh, what are some of the things you've seen that are, that are consistent um, throughout the state as far as challenges that uh, teams are having to like consistent issues or consistent things that they could improve on? Um, I think probably the biggest one, Marcus, is um, documentation. Uh, that's the one that that seems to to be uh, rearing its ugly head, uh, regardless of where we go. And I I really attribute that personally to um, the culture of the departments of the the units the the teams is. You know, I think we we overall do a very good job at training. I think we do a very good job at uh, our policies, our our procedures, our SOPs, our guidelines, whatever you want to call them. And I think sometimes we get into this the the teams you know specifically get in these positions where you know that's just the way we've always done it. We know what we're doing, so everyone knows what we're doing. So when you know, we start this process, you know, once contracts are negotiated and everything's taken care of, um, I, I think the bulk of the work, and I'm sure you'll attest to it after the recent one we did, and uh, um, it's a lot of time just reading. It's reading policy. It's reading uh, whether it's operational guidelines or SOPs or or, or different manuals, after action reports, um, ops plans, PowerPoints. We go through those things with a fine tooth comb and and kind of the metric, well, the actual metric we use is the the post guidelines on SWAT um, on top of, you know, comparing it to contemporary policies and procedures to make sure that we're all in line with what the expectations are. Because as I always tell teams, you know, when someone's loved one gets taken hostage in the middle of the night, and they call you to resolve this and save their their loved one from the hostage taker or whoever the case may be is whether it's you know devgru delta or you know fill in the blank swat the expectation is the same for the positive outcome they don't they don't care that you are a collateral duty team and you're training 20 hours a month it, it, there's no different standard for that so what we have to do is, is sometimes remind them like, hey, you guys are training hard. You guys are doing all these things. You have all this in place. But if you're not documenting it appropriately and, and with enough detail, after the incident's over, two years down the line, when all the civil stuff hits you, um, you're, you're already behind the eight ball. So I think documentation in what we do and how we do it is something that we could probably improve on, um, the majority of the time. Yeah. Nobody, nobody signs up and says, I'm super passionate about paperwork, right? No. There's a no. lot of jobs out there where if you're passionate about paperwork, you can make more money than us, be treated better and, uh, not get injured. So, yeah. um, but that's a battle space, 
right? There's a there's another battle space out there. You survive the event on the street. Um, you've got to survive it in the courts. You've got to survive it in the the social contract we have with the communities we serve. And uh, part of that battle space, part of the tools used in that battle space is documentation. And um, and if you don't document it, it didn't happen. So um, totally agree. Um, it's very hard. Um, applaud uh, leaders that really feel like, hey, I'm, I'm going to get ahead of this and uh, have somebody else look at it because um, maybe maybe I'm too close or maybe I haven't done this or maybe I haven't been in federal court before or, or all those things. So um, what's that process look like? So so folks, folks contact you, kind of talk about the scope, like, hey, here's kind of some issues um, or here's some things I want to do. And uh, then what happens? So again, once once the scope of the project and and the cost is is settled on, uh, it usually starts off with uh, what I just referred to as the data dump. It's the agency sending me policy procedures, um, all their after actions. Uh, depending on on the op tempo of the team, it could be three years, it could be five years of stuff we're looking at, and then um, I'll usually piecemeal that out to the other guys that are working on the project with me. You know, if it's a large scale project, that might be two, three, four of us. If it's a small scale, it might be one or two of us. And and literally, it's just pouring through line by line. And again, this is where we see the documentation issue is that, you know, if if your ops plan has a bunch of blanks in it where things aren't filled out or there's misspellings or there's... Um, you know, cut and paste stuff from the last ops plan. And we find that um, that's the stuff we bring to their attention. Like, hey, um, I realize that, you know, in the technology age, computers are great because you can cut and paste certain things, but you cut and pasted um, half of an ops plan from two years ago and no one caught that. Do you not think that the um, the attorneys are going to find that and shove that down your throat? And they're going to make you look less than professional. They're going to make you look less than detailed. And again, everything might have gone right on the op minus one little thing. Maybe you caused some property damage. Is they're going to paint you to be less than competent, less than professional, less than thorough, and they're going to make it look like you just don't care. So if we can get ahead of those things, all the better. So once we get all the data dump and we pour through all that, then typically the next thing we do is we schedule an on-site visit with the team. And it's usually about a two or a three day process. And the first day uh, we'll go in there and we'll just interview people from the team. We'll interview command staff. We'll interview CNT dispatch. Um, we'll even interview people that aren't part of the team. Uh, we want to get an outside perspective on what is the team's, what is the team's perceived you know, attitude. Are they a bunch of prima donnas? Are they, are they helpful? Are they not helpful? Um, are they looked at as like elitists that, you know, Hey, the old, you're either SWAT or you're not because that affects recruitment, retention, um, friction within the organization. Um, and then we'll pour through equipment. We'll go over, um, helmets, vests, uh, ammo, weapons, armored vehicles, uh, CNT equipment, um, you name it, scheduling, you know, are you guys overworked? Are you being used too much? Are you burnt out on, um, you know, special event stuff that you're just having to staff? Like, do you have all the tools you need to be successful? 
And then usually on the, the second or third day, depending on the, again, the size of the team and how many people we talk to, uh, we'll spend a day at, with the, the team at training and we are not there to tell you your tactics are good or bad. We are not there to tell you like, oh, you should be going left instead of going right. Um, we just want to see how the team flows, how you're managing your time. Um, you know, what's the day broken up like? How do you guys get along? Um, we want to see everything about the team. And the, the hard part about that is, is depending on how this is sold, this project is sold, whether it, it comes from the administrative side or it comes from within the team, if it's not sold well, if it's sold as an adversarial thing, we get it. Like guys are going to be guarded. Like they think we're going to come in there and shut their team down. We will never, ever recommend that you dismantle, disband, stand your team down. That is not our position. We are just there to be, it's like being an expert witness in court. You're not at anybody's side. You're an independent finder of facts and you're to report on the facts. Yeah. And, and to piggyback on that, um, the team that comes is built upon uh, subject matter experts from around the state who um, usually match the team that you're going to. Yeah. So if you're a regional team, we're going to find regional team subject matter experts that understand what best practices are, that understand uh, the level of documentation that for best practices to defend you in civil and criminal court. They're going to understand uh, selection, retention, negligence issues. Mm -hmm. If you're a you know metropolitan team that has 500, 800 sworn officers, then we're going to find people um, in that team that are from similar size agencies. If you're a small rural team and a small population, then we're not going to send four uh, metro style teams there. We're going to, we're going to build a team of different folks, uh, to meet that need. And again, the goal here is just to go, Hey, here's, here's what we think you're doing. That is consistent with best practices throughout the state and the country. And here's some things to consider that, uh, maybe you want to work on. And, um, if you don't, that's okay. Um, but at least, you know, and yeah. sometimes you're going to do that, right? You're going to go, hey, I don't have the resources for that particular issue, um, but thanks for telling me what it is. Um, but from an executive point of view, um, how much better can you defend a program when you say, hey, not only do we think that we're doing the best we can with the community's resources to handle some of the most challenging, complex uh, calls for service that we see, but we've had other people come in. And look at what we're doing to make sure. And uh, that's a trend uh, throughout law enforcement right now, not just in the tactical communities, but in investigations, in staffing. And there, there's all kinds of people out there that are doing reviews and audits on various parts of the departments to just mm -hmm. see, hey, what can we do better? We're really good at policing. We're not always good at the business end. We're not always good at building the appropriate structure. And it's always good to get outside. So, so you do a lot of stuff with... Uh, with auditing. And then, um, so, so I appreciate that. Um, we've, we've done a few of those, uh, together. You've done several, um, with other people on the team and, uh, so far has been, uh, pretty well received and, uh, definitely helps you when you're going forward to uh, ask for additional resources, whether it's personnel or, or things like that. And if I could just like throw, throw this in there, like, what I always tell guys when I go to these things and I, and I, and I meet them usually for the first time, I mean, I've got a pretty, pretty uh, wide group of guys I, I've 
come to know over the years and I can call and talk to you just like, like any of us that have been in the job for a while. But this is kind of the analogy I use is I, I said, cops, regardless of their, their rank are kind of like raising teenagers. And if you've raised teenagers, you, you can relate to this. What I tell them is, is if you have a teenager, you can tell them something all day long. You can tell them the sky is blue, the sky is blue, the sky is blue. And they're just going to blow you off. But the minute your kid's best friend's dad says the sky is blue, it's like, oh my God, this is, this is amazing information. I've never, heard, I've never heard this before. And they go, wow, yeah, this is really profound. So we kind of come in to be your kid's best friend's dad is we're trying to give that, that perspective. And, and sometimes there is a little bit of a disconnect between the line level guys who are doing the job every day, who either want more, feel they need more, whatever the case may be. And again, you know, within the department, everyone's fighting for the same budget. So maybe command staff doesn't think that the team needs X piece of gear, whatever the case may be, or more time or whatever the case may be. Um, we're in there to kind of like, kind of meet them in the middle and say, okay, guys, you really don't need this for your mission set, but you need this instead. And we can tell management, you know, whether it's a chief of police, a sheriff or whoever, and say, hey, the guys really do need this to, to make you more defensible on the other side of this thing. And, and even, you know, the chiefs that we've dealt with and, you know, command staff, they come in and say, okay, well, you guys aren't from the inside. The team's been saying it. Now I've got somebody else saying it. Okay, now I'm going to listen to you. So it, it's, it's just a matter of perspective is really what it is. Yeah, great point. And uh, sometimes you can't be a prophet in your own village, right? So, Absolutely. So you need a little, need a little help. So, um, so you're doing that for Cato. You're uh, working on our documentation. You've been helping uh, do some conference stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and then recently, um, Brent, the president of Cato, has got lots of requests, um, lots of conversation. We've had several podcasts related to wellness, taking care of your team, taking care of yourself, some modalities. Um, we talked to, you know, kind of one of the forefathers in the forefront of PTSD research, uh, Bessel van der Kolk. Um, so we've had people kind of come and go through our, through our space, kind of talking about what's, what's working to help, uh, veterans and cops. And, uh, what, what do you, what are your thoughts on that? You've, you've been through a lot of stuff lately and you've seen uh, a lot of stuff and we've really seen, um, I guess my opinion would be everyone's talking about it. Um, executives, chiefs, sheriffs are getting all kinds of information all the time. IACP, everyone's talking about it. Vets, veterans are talking about it. Um, veteran affairs is even acknowledging, you know, they can do something more than just pills. But I kind of see two models. I see people that mean well, but give it lip service. Mm-hmm. And then I see people that are actively funding, uh, staffing, and, and really trying to figure out what it looks like. And uh, some are better than others. Some are trying to figure it out. Um, unfortunately, uh, the path to anyone's personal wellness is not a straight path. No. And what works for you might not work for me. What works for you today might not work for you next year. That's right. And so... 
it really takes, and, and that's for one person, imagine an organization, right? And with its own culture. Yes. And then it's subcultures. So yes. super challenging to see. I just kind of wanted um, kind of some of your quick thoughts and your experiences of, uh, you know, what are, what, are, what are some things you've seen that, that are successful? Um, you know, I look at the ultimate, you know, thing is suicide. It's fresh on our minds from yes. yesterday and yep. we've all, we've all been touched by somebody we know, but I bet you we've all been touched a lot more by all the other behaviors that, yeah. that we do, you know, yes. uh, the, the drinking or the isolation or the anger yes, or the lack of joy that you just get at the end, you know, at this job where you're so kind of working on not being too high or being too low so you can handle business. And, uh, before you know it, you forget, you can't, you forget how to be naturally happy and, yeah. uh, and you can lose your sense of, uh, your sense of self that way a little bit. So, um, I've seen a lot of that yeah. actually. Um, I've seen people that don't know it. Yep. And, uh, kind of like boiling a frog. Yep. Um, so what, what are some things you've seen, uh, in your, in your own life, uh, I know your agency suffered some, some, uh, losses yeah. and, uh, some officers got killed and probably could have been handled better. Yes, um, very much so. We see that a lot throughout the state. Sometimes it's cause it's never happened before. Sometimes it's, uh, ignorance. Sometimes it's arrogance, but, uh, we're definitely, uh, a group, an army that hurts its own wounded a lot. Right. So, um, yeah. what, are, what are some strategies you've seen, uh, as you kind of did some stuff with Cato, took some tours of places, um, what are, what are some of those things you've seen that were successful and helpful? Well, you know, let me kind of just throw this out there is, is wellness is very much officer wellness and employee wellness. Um, it, it's very much a, a, kind of a buzzword, like it's, it's talked about, and what I tell people is we don't need any more awareness. We're very aware of the problem in law enforcement. Awareness is, is everyone's beating that drum right now. We don't need more awareness. We need more solutions. We need more, more action behind it. Um, so I see a, a lot of organizations and, and fortunately I've been able to, to teach across the United States, um, Talk to a lot of people, um, seen a lot of departments, how they, how they are doing things well and how some departments aren't doing them so well. Um, it's not an awareness issue. It's, it's a solutions issue that we don't have a lot of. And the sad part is, is, is when you try to put together a, a wellness program for an organization, you are trying to meet the masses and their needs. And typically what you see is is okay we have peer support um, we can send you to see a, a, an actual clinician a therapist to talk to um, if you've got a substance abuse or some other kind of of thing going on um, we can send you to to treatment we can send you to you know a 30-day program but I, I think what a lot of agencies are missing is that wellness to the individual sometimes looks very different than the wellness program you think you're putting in place. Because if it doesn't meet the, the, the substance abuse category, 
it doesn't meet the talk therapy or if it doesn't meet some, you know, being, being resolved with a peer support, then we can't do it. <clears throat> so I'll use, I'll use myself in the, as an example is um, I got to a pretty low point um, a few years ago and um, had a lot of stuff going on in my personal life. Um, didn't realize how bad that the, uh, the murders of Gil and Leslie in 2016 um, had an effect on me. And I had already been in therapy for years. Um, for those people that know, I have a 22-year-old daughter who is an addict and homeless. I've been dealing with that since 2015. Um, talk therapy only gets you so far. Um, the, um, the antidepressants, the medication only will take you so far. I didn't want to talk to peer support. I didn't have a substance abuse problem. Um, like what else am I supposed to do? And we didn't have a wellness program in my organization. And, and honestly, it wasn't until I, I had two very profound, like, like those come to Jesus moments with people. And one of them was one of my, my really dear friends. Um, I don't want to mention her name and throw her out there. But she asked me, she goes, hey, um, you are like you're pegged. Like you've, you're fight and flight and your anger, like you are out there right now. And she said, have you ever tried a, a stellate ganglion nerve block? And I'm like, well, I heard about that thing like 10, 12 years ago. And it was a bunch of SEALs that were doing it coming back from um, the Middle East but I kind of forgot about it. And so she sat me down and she talked to me about it for 15, 20 minutes. And she gave me uh, the number of a place in San Diego to go get it done. Um, I jumped on their website and you do this survey online and it gives you a score. So the score ranges from zero to being nothing to 80 to you really need this kind of thing. Um, I did the survey and I scored a 70. Good job. One of the highest grades you've ever got. That is absolutely true. Um, you know, being a, a proud graduate of the LA County school system, I can attest to that. But, uh, but they called me and said, Hey, I think you'd be a really great candidate for it. And did some more research, talked to them a while, uh, learned more about it. And basically what you have is the stellate ganglion nerve bundle, uh, that runs on both sides of your neck. And that is what controls your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. And when one is jacked up, your fight and flight, the other one is suppressed. And the one that gets suppressed is the one that controls your heart rate, um, your breathing, your digestion, all the things you need to, to, to live. So I scheduled it. I paid $1,000 out of pocket. Um, you go in and under ultrasound, they find that stellate ganglion nerve bundle um, they take a really tiny needle with a numbing agent. They insert it in the side of your neck, which sounds kind of scary. Um, but it, it really doesn't hurt more than like getting a blood test. And they inject this numbing agent around that stellate ganglion nerve bundle. And it brings down your sympathetic and it balances it out. And I can tell you that um, for nine months, I was a whole new man. I didn't feel like I wanted to throw everyone I met through the through a brick wall. I remember because you went from angry John to chill John for a little while there. Yeah. And it, you know what? And it it was the best thousand dollars I'd ever spent in my life at that point. And I got a couple of friends that I talked into doing it and they had great results. Um, and then I went and I did it a second time and I got about six weeks of relief out of it th that time. Um, but again, if I had went to my department and said, hey, I'm struggling. I don't know what to do. And I don't fit these categories of substance abuse and talk therapy anymore. 
um, will you pay for this? They would have laughed at me. They wouldn't have done it. And um, then it was probably about a um, year and a half, two years ago, I was in with my therapist. And uh, and I give everyone a pro tip when I, when I talk about my wellness journey. I, I always I always give this this little um, little pro tip out. My therapist uh, looked at me and she goes, hey, I want to bring something to your attention. That should have been my first clue. I was about to take a high inside fastball. Like, you are taking a high inside fastball. <laughs> and she said, I want to get something straight. She says, um, when did your mom die? And I said, uh, gosh, August of 15. When did your daughter start using? I said, October 15. When did Gil and Leslie get killed? I said, October 16. She goes, let me get this straight. In a 14-month period, you lost your mom, you lost your daughter, and you lost two friends. When did you start coming to see me about some of these problems? And I went, ooh, doc, that hurt. And it was shortly after that, she said, um, in, a, in a session, she said, hey, um, we're stuck. Like, I'm not helping you anymore. Like, I can't get through to you right now. And when your therapist tells you that. And then she hit you in the head of the bat. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I respond much better to that than I do anything else, honestly. Hmm. But, but that's a big deal. But it is a big deal when you're when your therapist, the person you've been confiding in for years says, I'm not getting through to you anymore. I, I felt like, oh, my God, like, this is bad. And she said, hey, I want you to try something different. And I was like, OK, um, what? And she goes, she goes, I know how you're wired. I know who you are. I know about your background. This is going to be very different. And I said, well, look, this, let's just get this over with. Pull the Band-Aid off, right? And she said, have you ever heard of Reiki therapy? And I'm like, no, never heard of it in my life, right? And she goes, it's kind of new age. It's kind of voodoo-like, but I want you to call this lady. So um, I reached out to, uh, her name is Michelle. Um, um, she's out in LA County. And I scheduled my very first session with her. And I had no idea what I was walking into. Like I, I <laughs> my was, first my first Reiki massage, I had no idea what it meant. And then afterwards I'm like, what just happened to me? This is the most amazing thing ever. And, right. And it's witchcraft. Yeah. But this wasn't a <laughs> massage. This was an actual like yeah, session. session. Yeah, yeah. And um I talked to to one of my my dear friends. Uh um, she's uh out of the out of state now. And uh, she goes, Hey, give it a try. Like just, just do it. It can't right? hurt, right? It can't hurt. So, no. you know, I went in, I went in the, this two and a half hour session and, uh, she knew nothing about me. Um, didn't know who I was. I just, what I was coming to talk to her about. And, um, within about the first 20, 30 minutes, she starts telling me stuff about my life that no one knows. Like, you, like obviously you can Google your name and find things out about yourself. Right. And if you've been, you know, active in like in the Cato world or in a teaching um, capacity or something, there, there's things about you, you can find out online, whether it's bios or, or something. Well, the thing she was telling me about my personal life is not online. And I went, OK, what the hell's going on here? This is like this is like voodoo. Right. And we went into the first session and the best way I can describe it is it, it's kind of like hypnosis and meditation on a whole new level. So you, you lay on this table and, and she puts like these hot stones on different parts of your body and then it's a guided meditation. And, and a lot like meditation is, is you go in with a intention and, you know, you recently experienced uh, something where you where intentions were a big part of, of your program. 
And I went in there with this intention of talking about a recent event in my life. And next thing you know, I am bawling hysterically on this table with my eyes closed in this meditation. And I'm five years old screaming at my dad on the baseball field. These were issues I didn't know were unresolved. And I came out of that after two hours and I was like, okay, I'm a believer in whatever you did. You found something I didn't know was there. And then I did a seven week intensive program um, where I went once a week and there's homework and I changed my diet and I did all these things. And the, the second session I went into, um, so, you know, since we're like full disclosure on things right now, and that's my only goal is to try and help people is I've always had a very, very, what I would consider an unhealthy fear of death. Like death has scared me. And I, th I think one of the main reasons why I was so afraid of death is because for 30 years in law enforcement, when we see death, it's not pretty. It isn't like the movies. It's the car crashes. It's the homicides. It's the baby drownings. Death is a very ugly thing for us. There is nothing about real death when you witness it day in and day out that you can romanticize like the movies do. It's not glamorous. It's not glorious. It's, it's, it's horrible. And we went into this and we did on my second session, what's called a death meditation. And it's a guided meditation where she walked me through my own death. And for my entire life being so afraid of death, this death meditation that she walked me through was the most peaceful, warm and comfortable feeling. And she said, that's what death's going to be like for you. And I was surrounded with my three kids and the sun was shining on my face and I wasn't afraid. And ever since then, I, I don't even think twice about death now. And she said, some of the fear that I do have is, is the unresolved things that I haven't done in my life or the, the things that I haven't, you know, put to bed, so to speak, or, you know, relationships that I haven't resolved or whatever the case may be. But, but I can tell you on the other, on the other side of that seven week program I did, um, now when I go and I, I go and I see her once a month for a tune up, um, just like a therapist. And we talk a lot about energy and we talk a lot about intentions and where my life's going. And she's like, if, if I could show you a picture of what you were like a year and a half ago, when I first met you compared to who you are today, she goes, you wouldn't recognize yourself. And, uh, I, I love it. Like I, I, I get more out of Reiki and I've gotten more out of Reiki in a short amount of time than I have in years of talk therapy. Yeah. <clears throat> and to be clear, you still have to work through your stuff. Yes. So a lot of these uh, modalities that are considered non-traditional are actually traditional all over the world. Yes. It's not here. Not in Western medicine. Because uh, HMOs don't make any money off it. Nope. And there's no pharmaceutical company backing it. But I digress. So yeah. uh, the main thing just to remember is these are all things that can work, but they're not going to work like a pill where you do them and all your stuff's fixed. This no. is a process. Um, to figure out and uh, very interesting that we spend so much of our careers with our mind controlling our body and making our body do stuff it doesn't want to do. Yeah. Whether it's working out, whether it's running into something that your body's saying, don't do this. Yep. 
and then you lose the ability to listen to your body. Yes. And so a lot of this is just reconnecting those neural pathways where you can actually listen and feel your body. And there's so much stress in our body that we keep. Mm-hmm. And even though you might feel like you don't have it, your body has it. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know that because you get you get stressed out, your shoulders, your upper back get <laughs> sore, and different parts of your body um, hold stress. That's why uh, you know so many people make so much money giving massages and all that other stuff. So It does work. Yeah. But it's temporary. Right. That's yeah. the biggest thing. It's, it's, and, it's all temporary. And I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just no. saying don't think that you just do one thing like that and it, and it makes it go away. But it's a uh, – yeah, there's some stuff that happens there that uh, I, I didn't have any education about, and yeah. uh, everything you say is 100 percent true. Yeah, and uh, when it happens to you, you're going to be like, "What just happened to me?" Well, this, it, this doesn't make sense. Uh, and then you kind of learn more about the science, and you're like, "All right, I get it." Well, and the, the funny thing is, is after I got through that first session, that consult for Reiki, I called that friend of mine uh, who's up in Idaho now, and uh, I go, "Hey." the psychic stuff happened. Like she was seeing things that like no one knows. And she goes, yeah, I didn't tell you about that. Cause I had to freak you out and you wouldn't have went. And I'm like, <laughs> Nope, I wouldn't have. <laughs> I go, you're absolutely right. I wouldn't have went. Cause that scared the hell out of me. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. But, but you know, back to like what agencies are doing right and wrong, you know, those are the things that aren't covered really in a, in a wellness program. It's, yeah. It's, hey, we're going to send you to therapy. We're going to send you to rehab if you have a substance abuse issue. We're going to let you talk to a, a, a peer counselor, peer support person. And if we can't put you into one of those, then then sorry, like the department can't help you. Honestly, if I were king for a day and I was going to write um, a wellness program for an agency, yeah, sure, those things would be part of it. But I always ask people, what does your budget look like for those things? Do you have a budget? Do you have a process that if someone comes to you and they're in that, that constant fight or flight mode and they're pegged and their uses of force are going up and they're drinking and they're doing all these other things, are you willing to write a check for a thousand dollars to send them to get a stellar ganglion block? And usually it's, well, we don't have a contract with, um, Oh, I don't know how that looks like, Oh, right. But think about, Think about how much money we spend training somebody, right? Yep. We train them and then year 15, year 20, year 25, their body starts breaking down. Their yep. their psyche's starting to have some issues. Yes. Right? And uh we just usually throw them away. And no, we, we absolutely could, do. You could you could drop mm-hmm. 10, 15 grand and get that guy back or girl back for another 15 years and and not only that, when they're done giving you 20 to 30 years of service, which is a lot more than 40 hours a week. Yes. They actually get to have a life when they're done. And they're not just a broken down shell of a human, which is what the machine will turn out if you don't take care of yourself. Yeah. I think I think the job itself is just a is just a big meat grinder. Like it just grinds you and grinds you and it spits you out. And as as much as we we all want to think how important we are in our organizations. The day after you leave, the machine keeps going. Yeah. Yeah. It I, does. Uh, I remember when I was brand new, I got assigned to the most senior shift in my agency. So everyone had 28, 30 some years on. Yeah. You know, I'm this new kid. And uh, I remember watching this guy retire. Yeah. And uh, he's on my shift and uh, he did 30 years. And I remember he just walks in the locker room, 
loads up a cardboard box, walks out the front door. Yeah. And uh, I'm just sitting there kind of looking and no fanfare. He didn't say goodbye to anybody. No. And uh, that's just kind of who he was. But I remember looking at that empty locker and going, 30 years this guy came in here every day. Yeah. Right? Four to seven days a week. Yep. You know, 40 minimum hours, right? Minimums 40. Yeah. And uh, for 30 years of his life, and he just walked out that door. He can't come in again unless nope. he's a visitor, right? Yeah. You got to be escorted. That locker will be filled. If not by the end of the day, some <laughs> new guy like me is going to come in and take that locker, right? Yeah. And the machine rolls on. So, yeah. uh, I just don't totally remember watching that man and yeah. just going, hey, never forget. This is uh, this is a machine. It's got to keep going. Mm -hmm. I'm just... You know, one of the clowns in the circus. Yep. And uh, some other clown will take my place when I leave. So, yeah, very true. So, uh, I guess the point in, in that story is if what you're doing is not working, seek seek things that can work for you. Yes. And um, the system is not designed to look outside anything that's not covered in your copay. So, uh, I had a buddy that I worked with. Uh, had back problems for years, horrible back problems. And it took him an attorney in probably six to eight months to finally get his acupuncture approved. Yeah, I believe it. And uh, I'm like, acupuncture, that seems kind of weird. and But it gave him tons of relief. And then I found myself 10 years later trying to figure out what's going on with me. And I just had a foundation in my town. So thanks to the Six Foundation who uh, – just does first responder stuff and they had an acupuncturist. So I got to go in there and only pay half of what I'd normally pay with my own money. Yeah. And uh, I left going, what just happened to me? <laughs> oh my God, that's fantastic. Right. You know, and just kind of reworking on that nervous system a little bit too. So yeah. don't just don't give up, do the research, right? There's some people out there right now that um, are at the forefront of uh some modalities that uh you know you might you might want to wait a little bit yeah. wait till the research comes out or wait yeah. wait till some more people have practiced with that particular modality or medicine long enough yep. that it's safe and uh but there's some stuff out there man that we just in our side of the world uh we we laugh at and then uh you find out you know some of the oldest peoples on the planet have been using this to stay healthy for thousands of years. Yep. And uh you're like, well, maybe uh maybe everything I learned wasn't uh all that I needed to know, right? <laughs> yeah, and I th I think that's uh and I kind of I kind of joke with people and I say, hey, I did everything I could possibly find. Like I did float therapy. Um if you've ever tried float therapy, a buddy of mine recommended it cuz it helps with his ADD. Um I did it and uh I went in there and I was you you lay in that pod and you close the lid on yourself and it's completely dark and you're floating in in 98 degree water that's got a high uh, um, saline count so you can't drown if you wanted to and I I remember being just so angry like this is stupid what am I doing I'm wasting my money this isn't gonna work on me like this is just weird I feel weird and then next thing I woke myself up snoring and I'm like <laughs> okay this worked right and and I but I joke I say hey I, I turned my body into a you know I was the guinea pig. Because if I'm going to talk to people about this, I better have done it. Like, you yeah. know, it, it's, and I think that's, I think that's where the big disconnect starts happening with, 
um, our, you know, quote unquote leadership or our management or, you know, executives is they get very far removed from the day to day of what the, the people in the field are seeing because their world's different or, yeah. or they're the people that have said, well, I, I did the job you did and uh, I'm fine. Yeah. But you weren't on that triple fatal TC last night because trauma is not comparable. It, it's not a, it is not a, a contest is my trauma is more significant than your trauma. Trauma is trauma. And, and we're all going to reject that word of trauma, but the truth is it's not, there's no line. So no. there's always somebody worse than you. Mm-hmm. And there's always somebody better than you. And none of that really matters. What matters is, are you living your best life? Correct. And if you're not, then go figure out how to do it uh-huh. because uh, we're not guaranteed mm-hmm. to grow old. And you picked a profession where you, you got to really fight the odds for that one. We're, we're yeah. dying 10 years younger if we make it. So I, I think that's, that's part of the issue is that I see is that, you know, management executives, they're so removed from things that they're not you. They're not doing the job today. They're not the ones operating under all the scrutiny. When they were doing the job, there wasn't body cams maybe, or there wasn't the oversight, or there wasn't all these assembly bills that we're operating within right now. So the job was very different. I think they lose perspective on that. Yeah. And, and their generation had their own things, right? And mm-hmm. the next generation will have their own things. And so part of that's just relative, but it's easy to dismiss. And, uh, and there are, there are people that don't need that. There are people that go through our career and they have all those issues or have all those things happen to them and they don't, don't have those issues, but, yeah. but nobody, nobody leaves this career without a mark. No. And, uh, you know, we all pay a price. Some pay more than others, but, mm-hmm. uh, you're all going to pay. So take care of yourself, you know, stay in shape because that's the only body you're going to get. And you want to be able to play with your grandkids and do that stuff when you're not yeah. uh, doing this job. And then uh, take care of your mental health because uh, that's going to impact your quality of life, your relationships, your friends, mm-hmm. all that other stuff. Yeah. I, I think, uh, I think it's just very frustrating when you're the person going through it and you're not getting the support you think you need from the organization is, Hey, I have this problem. I don't fit into one of the boxes that you've, that you've constructed through the wellness program. I need to do something different. And then you end up paying for it out of pocket, which is fine. Like I get that. But at the same time, the job is what did this to you. The job needs to take care of you as well. And just because you don't fit into the substance abuse talk therapy box, the, the organization should not be washing their hands and saying, well, you know, it, no. doesn't, it doesn't fit in here. So you're on your own. No, but don't, but don't not fix yourself just because of that. No, absolutely so, not. Cause the system, like everything else, even, even just buying a, buying a new patrol car, it's not a fast moving machine. No, it's and not. Then you throw in some out of the box stuff and it's going to be even slower machine. But if you look at the country, you look at what Congress is talking about with uh, veteran therapy that's going to trickle down to us. This is going to take a while, right? And yep. uh, quite honestly, part of it's about stigmas. Part of it's about money, mm-hmm. right? That that costs money. Yeah. And uh, there's a there's somebody that does a math. Yeah. And says, hey, this is easier to just retire this guy out than fix him. And yeah. uh, it doesn't happen all the time. Most of it's usually cultural. Um, it's not that bad. But those are all things to consider. But in the end. Um, I think you would agree with this. Don't wait 
for someone else to do it for you. Nope. You've got to own it. Yeah. Um, we've all done things that contribute to our mental health problems. <laughs> yes. And you got to take care of yourself. And it's kind of like uh, being overweight and then having knee problems. Well, whose fault is that? Yep. Well, it's our fault. So um, think about what you can do to prevent, you know, some of these issues and then mitigate uh, the ones that you have. So again, we, uh, we didn't want to, you know, go too far afield, but I wanted John to kind of share his story because it's not uncommon. Um, a little bit uncommon that he really dedicated himself to trying some new things and, uh, and it worked for him and, uh, knowing, uh, you before this and knowing you after you're a happier guy, you're more fulfilled. Um, and, you can live your life now and uh, some of those prices that you paid are worth it. Right. Yeah. And if uh, you have people in your life uh, that you worked with, they can't do that anymore yeah. and, and you owe it to them to, to live the best life you can. And, uh, and it's not, it's not moving on in a disrespectful way. No, it's never <laughs> forgetting them honoring their lives, but, but going, I'm going to honor your life because I'm not going to let that stop my life. Yep. And I'm going to do the best because I did get to go home that day. Yeah. And, and I did survive, you know, this career mm -hmm. and, uh, it's something I did. It's part of who I am, but it's not going to stop me from living a great life. So, no. um, if you need, uh, if you need that help, go get it. If you need information on any of that stuff, uh, reach out to John, uh, on his Cato email right on the website. Um, he can, he can tell you a little bit more about his path if that's something that interests you, but, uh, go do the research, talk to people. Um, you know, back in the, the day, it was more about choir practice and drinking your problems away. Yeah. I, I, I tell people all the time. I said, we had three therapists when I started Jim Beam, Jack Daniels and Johnny Walker. Yeah. And so, uh, so we don't have that now. No offense, Riyadh. We weren't talking about that, Johnny Walker. All right. So, John, thanks for joining us. We'll let you go. Thanks for joining me, brother. No, thanks, Marcus. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catotraining.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catotraining.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice. 